This is Barry Glassman, Harford County Executive, and you're listening to the 200th episode of the Maryland Association of Counties podcast. Happy 200th, Conduit Street. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, it's Wednesday, May 11th, and today is a huge milestone for the Conduit Street Podcast. Number 200, our 200th episode. Hard to believe it, but a little <laughs> reflection on how we got here from you, I think, is in order. Well, well, thanks for the setup. And I mean, we know people love the round numbers, right? So that's that's it's pretty cool. I, I would say Aside from the round number, what I'm awfully happy and proud about with this little thing we started a few years ago was, you know, we had this idea. We were doing a conference call for county officials to dial in on Fridays during session to hear what's been going on in Annapolis. And the whole idea was let's try and reach a level deeper than the people who are able to travel to Annapolis for a meeting and talk about specific bills and be, and join a, on the legislative committee and that kind of thing. And we were happy to get 15, 20, 25 people to dial in. There would always be some people who would call and say, hey, did you record the call? I'd, I'd like to hear what happened. I just wasn't available at that time. And anyway, it evolved into this podcast and the idea of wrapping up policy and politics around Maryland, sometimes with a county focus and sometimes not. Um, just seems to have scratched an itch that was out there. So what we thought might be 50 people has now turned into thousands of subscribers, listeners, and downloads for every episode. I will say, I don't think this happens in anything like that fashion without your time and stewardship, Kevin. You've been on every single episode. You do the work behind the scenes, and you're the one who makes this come together. So hats off to you. This is a big success for our association and for our members and listeners. Very happy about the the podcast and its growth. And of course, it doesn't all come together without the Mako shop. I think we have some people in our office more excited than maybe you and I are. And you'll see some stuff on the uh, on the social media channels and whatnot. But hats off to you as well. It's a big accomplishment. And part of the success and the growth allows us to get awesome guests on the podcast. And we have one today, Nicholas Redding, the president and CEO of Preservation Maryland. I'm really excited about this one. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. It's, uh, you know, it's perfect for a preservation group to be here on a historic day for the 200th episode of uh, Conduit Street. <laughs> I like that. I like this that. one we'll might go in the time capsule. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll say that we set that up just, just in time. But Nicholas, you're the president and CEO of our state's oldest, largest, and most effective preservation organization. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Preservation Maryland. So tell us a little bit about Preservation Maryland, what your goals are, and what you do day to day. Yeah, sure. So, well, it's it's great to be here, and I'm a, a fellow podcaster, so I'm I'm impressed by uh, the the uh, effort that you guys put into this, and I'm a listener of Conduit Street and and. Uh, really enjoy being here with you guys. So, um, yeah, so Preservation Maryland's a pretty interesting organization. We've been around 91 years. So we were founded back in 1931, and we joke that we were the original Washington Slept Here organization. We actually were founded um, to mark sites associated with George Washington in Maryland because Washington 
um, depending on which calendar you look at, was born in 1732. And so the 200th anniversary of, of Washington's birth uh, fell in 1932. And the whole idea was that we were going to mark all these sites. Um, we did one small project in 1932, and then the, the Depression really picked up. And we didn't really end up becoming much of an organization until after World War II. And, you know, we, we've, like anything that would be 90 years old, we've, we've changed focus over the years and done different things. You know, we started as an organization that owned historic properties, um, some of which you're probably familiar with, Old Y Mill. You probably, everybody sees that sign when you go over the Bay Bridge. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we, we used to own that. We used to uh, uh, own and operate uh, Hampton Mansion, which became an, a National Park Service site there in Baltimore County um, and a variety of other places. But, um, you know, over the years, that transition to becoming a much stronger advocacy organization as sort of the preservation community shifted. And then what's old is new again, or the past is prologue, whichever way you look at it. And we have kind of dove back in um, to bricks and mortar and actually getting our hands dirty, um, rehabilitating structures. We have a pretty dynamic historic trades training program where we're putting people in the field and training them in partnership with the National Park Service um, and doing historic trades training. And, and some of that involved advocacy this year in the General Assembly. So um, we, we like to think that our goal is not just to save one building, but how can we use advocacy and sort of a broader vision of impact to save thousands of buildings and impact communities all across the state. So uh, we can talk about all those different programs, but we're a, a diverse and, and dynamic and growing organization. I've been here um, coming up on eight years. Um, and we started with, I think we had five employees when I got there and we have, um, we just hired two more. So we'll be up to close to 18 employees yeah. um, by, uh, by the end of the month. Well, Nick, that, that, that setup is, is helpful for, I mean, I, I think that, that helps lay out why we were excited to, to bring you on and talk about the, the work of the organization and sort of the preservation effort generally in the state. I'm really interested, though, as sort of a sidelight, that we have a similar past. Our, our association was formed decades ago, largely as an internal service organization, so that the county commissioners and elected officials could sort of share best practices with one another and, and do member education and things along those lines. And MAKO as an organization becoming engaged in policy and advocacy came later as a realization that we were stakeholders in policy decisions before the state legislature, in the budget, by state agencies and so forth. That sort of naturally evolved from our members. And, and it sounds like that was part of Preservation Maryland's evolution too. So it probably puts us in a similar spot. Can, can you talk a little bit about being a policy advocate in a weird way? I mean, we think of, you know, moneyed special interests who, uh, you know, who have political action committees and, and have influence over policy, but the kind of work that Preservation Maryland does is pretty different from that. Uh, but you all see it uh, as part of your mission to engage with policy leaders and with, you know, with, with agencies and so forth. Can you, can you lay that out a little bit more for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think a lot of people think lobbying and they think, you know, like you said, moneyed interests and things like that. And there's different versions of that. Um, you know, I think it all comes back to this sort of conversation that was had probably 20, 30 years ago where 
you know, I think a lot of people think of preservation groups as sort of like coming in at the last moment and trying to tie themselves to a building and stop a bulldozer <laughs> and things like that. And we, we do so very little of that. I, I've, I've, I haven't tied myself to a building in years now. Um, <laughs> so I've actually never done it. But, uh, but you know, the, the idea basically is that, you know, if we put policy in place that makes preservation um, more financially feasible um, and of benefit to communities, then more people will take advantage of it. it it's, it's far easier to get people to do things when policy makes it possible than it is to kind of like badger them into doing things. And so we're very mindful of that and mindful of the idea that, you know, if we put all our eggs in one basket, we can save one building or, you know, we could stop one thing from being demolished. But if we create a really robust historic tax credit program, um, like we've championed for years now, um, we can, you know, literally impact thousands of buildings across the state and change the landscape of community redevelopment and revitalization and infill development um, by doing that. I think one of the interesting things about being a sort of a nonprofit policy um, and advocacy shop is that a lot of what we advocate for, or I would say most of what we advocate for, doesn't really directly benefit us. It, it benefits the community of which we serve. And, and we sort of see ourselves as an organization focused on service um, to others and service to community. Um, and that's sort of the goal of you know, the vast majority of um, our policy work um, is putting the, the funding and the tools in place that makes preservation not only possible, but makes preservation um, something that communities want to use um, instead of something that they feel like they have to do. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it and a great analogy. I think Mako and Preservation Maryland are aligned in that regard. We're not the biggest shops but we rely on our expertise and we may not have the PACs, but we do have our word and people respect, I think both organizations and understand that when we're at the table, you can take it to the bank, right? And the important work that we're doing, I think, you know, the, the, the stuff that you're talking about, getting the right tools in the toolbox to make sure that not only are you going to save a building, two buildings, you're going to create programs that are long lasting and that actually incentivize people to want to engage and understand the importance of preservation. And I, and I, I also think it's great timing to have you on here as we sit in May, because May is National Preservation Month. And you've talked about George Washington and how Preservation Maryland got its start. And National Preservation Month is all about celebrating the nation's diverse and unique heritage. And of course, Maryland is certainly a big part of that. So I'm sure that you all are excited about National Preservation Month and you are pushing out great content to remind people about the importance of preservation and from where we sit, the especially importance of preservation in Maryland. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting, it's interesting you bring that up, this idea of diversity and where we came from, our roots and, and where we are today. So, um, you know, I, I obviously we were this organization that has this Washingtonian um, sort of um, beginning. But today, you know, we're an organization that really is looking at how do we tell stories that speak to all aspects of um, Maryland's life and the people who make up Maryland. And so we're, we're keenly aware of and really focused on trying to um, bring forward those stories and provide um, resources to preserve sort of underrepresented history. Um, we did one of the first statewide context studies, which basically is a way of looking at the context of history and sites and physical places that represent that. And we did a study that looked at um, LGBTQ history and sites associated with it all across the state 
It was the second statewide study like that in the nation. Um, we're doing currently something that I'm sure Mako will be in, will be interested in the results of um, a study on the con a context study on the history of um, school construction and development across the state and the different types of historic school construction um, and and how that. Um, tells a story not only of how the state invested in education, but how it didn't invest and um, separate but unequal policies and, and how that's rooted in the landscape. So we're, we're really interested in sort of bringing forward those stories and um, see this as a month to kind of celebrate and contemplate and confront um, different aspects of, of history because um, not all of our history is history that's to be celebrated, but it's all history that needs to be recognized and um, understood and, um, you know, appreciated in one way or the other. Um, and uh, that's, a, that's our job. And, and the job of preservation is, is, is wide ranging these days. It, it touches on things that are both physical and intangible. I think that's well, well put. And you are probably very right that um, the, the, the findings of that delving into the history of school construction, I think would be a very popular item at a future MAKO conference or event. I think there'd be a lot of county officials who'd be really interested in that, both, both just knowing about the history and background of those issues, but also whatever shadow that casts on the way we, we think about school buildings as part of community definition today I, I'm sure has roots that go back in history. So we'll put a pin in that because that, that sounds like it's worth following up on to me. For sure. For sure. And I, I think, you know, talking about school buildings and we've talked about saving a building or two versus, you know, really uh, getting the community to invest in preservation and understand the importance of it. But I think Nick, when most people think about preservation, they think about those tangible things, right? Like an historic building or a space but we don't often think about the parts of history that we can't touch. We're talking about historical knowledge, personal experiences, but those intangible things are a big part of what you do, right? It's not just the buildings. It is also the, the personal stories and the history that is such a big part of preservation generally. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think a lot of people and, and you know, you guys are, are and I say this in the kindest of ways, policy wonks. Um, and so you understand how policy shapes the way in which we see the world and the way in which we, you know, engage in different types of projects and things like that. Preservation, you know, has a long um, legacy and a long shadow of policy going back to the, you know, the 60s. And, um, you know, the National Register of Historic Places is very focused on place. So I think a lot of people sort of connect preservation specifically with place. Um, but you know, with certain communities, African-American communities that have lost those places, perhaps the only thing that connects them um, to those stories is sort of the intangible culture. And so it's something that we've really begun to embrace as a component of preservation because um, not every physical place that tells a story is left. Um, and not every aspect of Maryland history um, is rooted in place, but there's certainly important components of history that go beyond just the physical structures. So, um, you know, whether that be food, um, whether that be music, whether that be, um, uh, you know, the, the celebrations, the stories, um, the storytelling, um, all of that is kind of combined and is, is an important component. It's actually why, you know, it's interesting hearing about why you guys launched your podcast. And one of the reasons we launched ours is that we wanted to be able to kind of do in-depth stories 
um, that talk to people about those things that kind of go beyond physical place and, and how story and intangible culture connects with place. Um, so it's, it's part of the reason we've done that. And uh, it's definitely a component and a growing component of our work um, because, you know, in, 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 a, in sort of a, a silly way, nostalgia is a, is a powerful drug. And people um, love connecting with the story and place. And story is what adds value um, and what makes people um, not only fall in love, but also um, are willing to preserve and engage in preservation. Um, it's the stories. It's not just the buildings themselves. So storytelling and that intangible culture is a critical component of, of what we do. And, and I would imagine in the same way with Mako, right? Getting policy across isn't just because it's good policy, but there's story behind it about why it matters. Yeah. And, I, you, and I'm sure you can relate. I mean, if you're sitting at the testimony table and you're just, you know, going through here, here's number a, here's column B, here's what these numbers mean. That's all boring and everybody can understand that and read a fiscal note. But when you can get somebody up there to actually explain the impact that something has on a community, that hits home with legislators and everyone really. And if, if they can make that connection, if you can make a personal connection with someone through a personal story or through this impacted me in X way and here's why that's different from what you see in a fiscal note, I think that is a huge selling point. And it's a big part of what both of our organizations do, trying to tell the story, make sure people understand that we're talking about real world stuff here that affects real world people across the state. I think that's well put and it, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I, you know, I think there are endless examples of your advocacy in action. I mean, from partnering with the Baltimore Museum of Industry to save a 100 foot tall World War II era crane in the city, to preserving Harriet Tubman's legacy on the Eastern Shore, a lot of what you do is, is right out there in the open for everyone to see, and you can see those results. And I also am interested in your Six to Fix program. That seems to be a lot of what you do and a part of your big success as well. Yeah, that was a program we launched several years ago because when I got here, we were we were doing an endangered list. And a lot of preservation groups do that. And I used to joke that it was sort of just this sad list that we published every year of things that were really sad. Um, and then we didn't really do anything about them. And so we transitioned into a program called Six to Fix, where we would identify six projects on a yearly basis and engage and, and, and um, do work on them. And that has even sort of transitioned through the pandemic um, into really hands-on property development projects, um, where we've actually then taken direct action and are working with municipalities um, and private property owners and others um, to rehabilitate structures. And so it takes a, a wide variety of paths. Um, you know, obviously advocacy is always a component of it. You need either policy or funding to make these things possible. So, you know, our partners at the Baltimore Museum and Industry did an amazing project in rehabilitating um, their uh, World War II era uh, crane uh, with great support from the team in District 46. Um, and, uh, you know, from, from a project like that to working in partnership with sites along the Harriet Tubman Byway. Um, we worked with a group at Malone's Church um, out in Dorchester County to try and, and gave them strategic planning support to kind of think through how they wanted to evolve that site and what they wanted to do with it. So some of it is very, you know, find the money. Some of it is um, help them build a vision. Um, and then, you know, through, through the pandemic, um, you know, we've launched this property redevelopment program where we've actually 
in some cases, acquired threatened structures, rehabilitated them, and then sold them for owner-occupied affordable housing. We did a project like that in Hagerstown. Um, and now we have a, a big project not far from Conduit Street. Uh, if you poke your head out, you might even be able to see it. Um, we're going to be working in partnership with the city of Annapolis um, to stabilize and elevate the Burtis House, which is the last remaining waterman's cottage down on the end of City Dock. Um, and that is going to be uh, elevated uh, almost eight and a half, nine feet in the air. Eventually, the rest of City Dock will meet it. Um, and that is a, a project to save that building and then uh, hopefully create some type of visitor contact station, um, perhaps even for the National Park Service right there at the edge of City Dock. So we, we have a variety of different ways of engaging um, and, and managing those projects and um, actually showing the power of preservation uh, in a very physical way. Um, and those are just a, a handful of the ones that we're working with right now. Well, I, I like the mentality of the six to fix approach. Like even in your description, you talked about turning it from sort of a negative to a positive and, and with, a, with an optimistic spin. These are the things we want to target for the good. And, and to some degree, like outreach on, on having a list of target projects like that, I mean, this goes back to, I mean, forgive me, it's maybe a torture analogy, but this is sort of like the FBI's most wanted, right? You put, you put pictures up at the, at the post office to tell people, you know, we're doing work to keep you safe and here are some of the people we're after. This person robbed a bank and this person did these violent deeds and so forth. And this is who we're trying to track down as a, like, we're going to, get these bad guys. It's kind of the same mentality. We've, we've got projects that are really worthy and you should care about them too. And here's what we want to accomplish on our to-do list. I, I, think, I think that way of messaging your next steps is, is a good way to get broader buy-in for, for the kinds of things that, I mean, honestly, when I, you know, when I read that list, I, I'm going to get motivated behind them too. And I'm sure that's exactly the intent. So I, I, I kind of like that that philosophy at the very least. Yeah, it's really tangible. I mean, and, and, and particularly as we've even transitioned into doing these, these hands-on projects and managing them and raising the money and then partnering, whether, whether we buy them directly or we partner with an organization or a municipality or we're working with Howard County on one. Um, you know, I think it, it, it's very easy for people to kind of see exactly where we're trying to head rather than just kind of having a list of, of whether it be priorities or things that are going wrong, but it's like, here's, here's specific things that we can do together um, to fix that. And so we, we try and be very impact driven. Uh, and it's the same thing in our historic trades program. So we launched in partnership with the national park service. Um, one of Maryland's best kept secrets is that the national park services historic preservation training center is based in Frederick, Maryland. And, um, Oh, nearly a hundred master craftspeople um, based out of that shop, and um, we are their charitable partner and are working not only to recruit um, trainees for that program, um, but also now we're working in partnership with them to establish registered apprenticeships for historic trades training. Um, hmm. And so it's a very specific and hands-on and direct way of trying to change um, the nature of um, trades um, in the country, and particularly historic trades. Um, and we're just fortunate to have um, this national unit right in our backyard and a great partnership with them. But it's another example of where we can specifically show how we're kind of doing our work. And I think that that's really important in nonprofit work, particularly in advocacy, 
And that's the cool balance of us is that we have the advocacy that supports the direct and hands-on piece, um, which allows us to kind of show the power of advocacy in a very physical way. Right. Well, on, on, on issues of advocacy, I think you know, the, the sort of Venn diagram for Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Association of Counties has a pretty substantial overlap. There are some things that local governments are, are really invested in similar to, to your your members and, and stakeholders. I'm thinking of things like program open space, which, you know, for to, to abbreviate a, a big and complicated program is basically a way that Maryland takes some tax revenue that arises from real estate development and says, let's take some of that money that shows up, especially in a hot real estate market, and use it to to, to target sensitive areas and do some preservation work. Um, there, there's a number of things affiliated with program open space that also come out of the state transfer tax under the same philosophy, including some historic preservation funding. All, all of that stuff is, I think, a really interesting and novel focus for for Maryland public policy. And we do, generally speaking, a good a good idea, you know, a good, a good deal of that. Um, there's a lot of smart growth related policies that to some degree it's about generic sprawl and and focused development where the infrastructure exists and where there's capacity but it's also recognizing important and sensitive and historic locations as part of your land use plan and i think we've got some common interest there i, I think all those things are are interesting policy areas for folks like us to engage as advocates, um, property like historic property redevelopment feels like it might be sort of a next frontier on that front, and that's one of the areas that that Preservation Maryland is, is focused on as well. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're exactly right on all of that. I mean, we've been champions of program open space for years. I, I actually, for two or three years, um, chaired the Partners for Open Space. Um, which was an interesting kind of overlap between us and the more traditional environmental world. I think it was a great kind of connection between the two um, because we sort of see it as um, the, the offensive game for, for preservation, right? If you don't uh, sprawl out, then the focus is on revitalizing what you already have and that disproportionately is historic structure. So it's, uh, it's sort of a, a long game for preservation, but we see sort of the value between the two. And also, you can't disconnect um, Maryland's landscape from our history, right? Like, you know, the, the history of agriculture and the landscapes of Maryland are so evocative and they are a part of our historic landscape. So history is rooted in the landscape, whether there's a building there or not. Um, so it's important for us. And um, I think you're exactly right in terms of like big picture, how Maryland grows. Um, I like to think that property redevelopment take preservation out of it. Um, let's say you're not super focused on on the historic side, but just reusing what we already have and reinvesting in existing communities um, is critically important um, because we can't grow our way out of every problem. And, um, you know, the state only has so much land and it doesn't really make sense to keep sprawling out when we have underutilized, you know, large strip malls and things like that that could be rezoned um, and made more effective. So I think that there's an interesting balance um, and an opportunity for advocates who just care about community development to take a look at the tools and, and policies that we've created on the redevelopment side and the, the preservation side 
as a tool for community infill and, and redevelopment. I think it's, um, you know, in uh, two or three years ago, where Thousand Friends um, was absorbed into the operations of Preservation Maryland, we relaunched it as a program called Smart Growth Maryland. And so we lead um, uh, advocacy coalitions in some of the fastest growing counties around the state um, to try and incentivize, you know, smarter growth policies and, and reinvestment in um, historic communities. And I think if you look at, um, you know, we obviously Maryland has been a leader in smart growth and we've done a really good job on land preservation. I don't think we've always done as good a job on the other side of that coin, which is how do we make it easier for communities to redevelop what they already have? Um, and I think moving forward that that is, that needs to be a priority. And I think a lot of counties um, would clamor for that kind of um, support and, and ability. So it's, it's definitely an area of, um, overlap in interest between Mako and Preservation Maryland. Yeah, I agree. And I think you, you piqued my interest when you talk about sort of the, the redeveloping what you already have. And we try to be glass half full. And when you talk about the pandemic, we know how awful it's been and, and all of the bad things that have come from it. But we also see some opportunities moving forward. And when you talk about, you know, the evolution of, you know, the mall, right? And we know that that that's sort of out the window with with how people and consumers want to shop and um, and so rethinking sort of these giant spaces where we have these dilapidated buildings that were formerly malls or whatnot and trying to instead come up with ways to redevelop that land and make it you know benefit for the community that has to be something that you're thinking about too as we hopefully come out of this pandemic the opportunities that we've seen and things that we've learned i think that's going to play a big role in your advocacy moving forward i'd, I'd imagine so right yeah i mean absolutely and I, I think you know you hit the nail on the head where it's, it's you know even if you take preservation and you know just having a conversation about policy around revitalization um, of underutilized spaces and you know, things that aren't paying their fair share under the tax roll. I mean, that, that's where counties really should care the most, right? Like, obviously, they want good communities and all that kind of thing, but they, they also need to be able to pay the bills. And so underutilized spaces um, should be of interest. It benefits preservation. So obviously, we're interested in it. Um, but you're right. I mean, you know, not every mall is historic, but, you know, that certainly those spaces need to be reutilized. Um, and there's interesting sort of policy examples from across the country that Maryland could take a look at sort of in the years ahead. You know, there's, um, you know, these abandoned mill tax credits in North Carolina, abandoned um, property or vacant property tax credits um, in South Carolina, where the idea is to try and just sort of get, um, you know, sort of projects moving in these spaces. And, and so I think that there's more that we can do collectively on sort of the infill and redevelopment of existing space and even incentivizing counties to, you know, kind of think about how using sort of the carrot policy of, you know, how do you take, you know, I'm thinking I live in Frederick and, you know, we have vast stretches of sort of underutilized, um, you know, strip mall space and, um, you know, the way people are shopping now, you know, and so much of that moving online what happens to these big box stores that really don't have any value anymore? Is there a way to incentivize the rezoning of places like that to benefit affordable housing and, and kind of let the market do it? You know, because if it's rezoned in such a way that it makes more sense um, to reuse that space for affordable housing or workforce housing or whatever it might be that benefits that community, um, that re reuses existing space um, instead of having to kind of sprawl out. So 
I think that there's a lot of interesting overlap and, and a lot of work to be done in the years ahead, particularly as we see how the pandemic shakes out and, and how it reshapes the nature of real estate. Um, you know, the, the other piece you've mentioned malls, but you know, there's a lot of office space that mm-hmm. people just aren't going to go back to. So what do we do with that? And how do, how do we reuse that and revitalize that? And I think the preservation community has some, some tools up its sleeve and some experience in that that can be of value um, to just the broader community redevelopment community. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about affordable housing forever. I think we should have you back on just to talk about affordable housing and and how the pandemic is sort of reshaping the way we think about opportunities out there and and reducing that sprawl and using what we have. But I, I also think that that brings into to mind the, the 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 equity component of all of this, right? And preservation is certainly a tool for a more equitable future. That has to be something that you and your team think about a lot. It, it introduces a set of questions into the decision-making process that, that focuses on equity, both in the process and the outcome. So talk a little bit more about how preservation can be used as a tool to promote equity for everyone moving forward. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. And, and just as an aside, when you talk about affordable housing, we did a whole white paper on affordable housing and historic preservation, which is a kind of a component of, of this broader question around equity. Um, you know, historic communities actually, you know, they, they, we got a lot of knocks against historic communities that they're tools for gentrification, that they stymie growth, um, that, you know, it, it prevents the natural progression of um, a community. And we have a lot of good data that that refutes most of that. Um, you know, historic communities tend to be some of the most diverse in terms of um, uh, building stock. So you have a wide variety of different types of structures. And we hear a lot about this, and you, you maybe have touched on this before, where sort of this idea of the missing middle when it comes to housing. And it's, it may always makes me laugh because I'm like, oh, they're describing historic neighborhoods, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> that, that's what we have. It naturally right. occurs. I, I live in a little uh, community here in Frederick County um, in Walkersville, Maryland. And, um, you know, the neighborhood that I live in, there are duplexes, there are single family homes, there are row homes. There's just this wide variety of different things on the street, um, you know, in most zoning across you know, not to knock the counties, but most zoning across um, Maryland would never permit where I live to be built. And so mm-hmm. in terms of equity, preservation has a lot to offer. Um, you know, I could really kind of wonk out on all the different stats and figures and stuff like that. But one of the things that you see that's interesting that provides a lot of opportunities to kind of create more equitable um, development patterns is that historic communities have one of the widest swings in value of structures within one given area. So if you have like a new subdivision development, you might have a difference of you know, maybe 5% between the most expensive house and the cheapest house. And it probably has to do with whether or not it has a finished basement or something. But in a historic community, you can have a swing of like 60 to 70% between the cheapest and the, and the, and the, the most expensive. And so what that means is you can have a wide variety of incomes living all within one area and have that mixed um, income approach that we try and kind of artificially create now. And it just sort of naturally occurs in historic communities. And we talk about sort of naturally occurring affordable housing in historic communities. So that's all to say that we think that there's tremendous value. But in order to make that possible, again, coming back to policy, we have to have policies in place that make it easier to rehab structures um, for people to um, invest in historic places um, and be able to have the tools in place to, to do some of that work. 
Um, and so, you know, the equity of this and providing, um, you know, resources for every Marylander, no matter their, um, you know, their, their income or where they come from, um, is of great importance to us. Um, and it's why we've tried to sort of democratize the residential tax credit. We have a tax credit for um, historic residential property owners, and we have a great one in Maryland because it's refundable. So um, unlike a lot of states, you know, where you, the tax credit's only equal to your um, taxable income here in Maryland, you get a check back, um, which makes it a lot more usable for various income levels. So yeah, equity is, is a huge component of our work. Um, we've just established our, our first DEIJ policy as an organization and sort of charting how we want to do this work. But it, it is central to everything we think about in terms of, of how we equitably invest in communities and the, in the redevelopment and preservation of historic resources. Yeah, and of, of course, zoning—you know—zoning is a monster uh, in itself. But one of the things I, I like about what you all do is that you do reach out to to county governments, to municipalities, to the actual communities themselves, because I think you can understand and you know that one size fits all does not work very well. And so, being on the ground, talking with community members, talking with local governments, and understanding—you know—what the needs are, what the opportunities are, and looking at it through that lens makes a lot more sense than trying to just create some blanket policy that, you know, can't be implemented in many places across the state. So I, I really think that that's the correct approach. That's one that we prefer as well. And it seems like you all do a good job of that being boots on the ground in communities, you know, seeing what's going on and understanding what the opportunities and challenges are instead of just, you know, going to the general assembly and saying, Hey, we want to just do this thing across the state. It's going to be great. And then it sort of falls apart and that doesn't benefit anyone. Right. So it's really important to get that local buy-in and for people to be able to understand and see what the benefits are going to be with some of the stuff that you guys do locally. Yeah. I think, you know, interestingly, um, blanket policies just don't work in Maryland. It's funny, we're such a small state, but still there's just, there's nuances in the way that communities have developed and what they need. And so the only type of blanket things we ever try and create are policies that help that create incentives so that communities can take advantage of things because that pretty much across the board, everybody needs money. So um, it never hurts to have a tax credit that benefits everyone. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think sort of blanket zoning, um, you know, or, or forcing things um, across the board really ever works. And, and I'm so terrified of make go, I, I would never go that route anyway. So <laughs> Well, I I think you know joking joking aside, um, it, it is a reasonable you know read of the room that we've got circumstances in you know Mountain Maryland and the Lower Eastern Shore and and the 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 built up suburban part of the state that just are fundamentally different, and, and so you know having different game plans for different areas makes sense. And sometimes a flexible tool is, is the right way to do it. And sometimes it'll take a partnership in each of those areas to come up with something that, that's tailored well. But um, so, so one thing you teed off with early was that your shop is also in the podcasting business. So, so we've got followers here on Conduit Street. And for those who have made it through this conversation, some of them are county type people, but a lot are just interested in public policy and in the kind of stuff that we've been talking about. So you've got some potential listeners here among our followers pitch to the Conduit Street listener what they ought to be listening to in their podcast feed if they like what they heard today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you can't get enough of me, there's over 230 episodes 
uh, of me talking about preservation and history. And um, it's called PreserveCast, and you can pick it up anywhere you want. You can go to PreserveCast.org and take a look at all of our back episodes and everything there, or you can get it on iTunes and Stitcher and Amazon and wherever you get your podcasts. Spotify, it's all there. Um, but uh, what we cover, interestingly, even though we're based in Maryland, the whole idea was preservation didn't really have a, sort of a, a podcast voice. And so three, four years ago, we launched this thing. I was crazy enough to think we would try and do it weekly. And we've pretty much kept that. We, we took a, a short sort of hiatus where we went monthly and we lost a bunch of listeners and we said, all right, we're going back and we're doing it weekly. And so um, because we pump out so much content, it's not just Maryland. So if you're interested in just preservation and history writ large, we talk to people from really all across the world. Um, we have a great connection with um, some friends in England. And so we talk to people overseas quite a bit. Um, we talk to, um, you know, we joke on the, on the podcast, it's everything from drones to mudlarking. And if you want to know what mudlarking is, then you can download the mudlarking episode and learn about how um, people try and spot pottery and coins uh, <laughs> on the foreshore of the River Thames. Um, and uh, yeah, so we we cover a lot of ground. We try and make it sort of topical. So we have a great one coming up on Juneteenth and uh, the celebration of Juneteenth in Maryland. I'm talking with folks from um, MNC PPC down in Prince George's County and the work that they're doing there um, to celebrate uh, the new nat- nat- federal holiday. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we cover, um, we talk to a lot of different authors about history books and new topics in the field. Um, so if you're interested in preservation history and sort of the movers and shakers and the people who are making it possible out there, um, that's what we cover. And it's weekly and we have a lot of fun doing it and, and have just like, you know, you kind of talked about the value early on being this is your 200th episode. We've seen tremendous value from it. It's created a lot of great networking and opportunities for us to kind of um, talk to different people and in interesting topics and allow us to cover a lot of ground. So that's where you can find it at preservecast.org. And we would love to, uh, to uh, uh, have more listeners join us there. Well, I, I like the tease. So, so definitely I, I've been scribbling notes to myself on episodes that I'm going to have to dig back into and go listen to, but you know, don't give us the whole payoff because I want to go listen to this stuff myself. I'm, I'm in now. Yeah, we've we've got some we've got some interesting stuff. I'll give you one more tease, which is we inter- interviewed the historian of Rankin Bass Productions. This was around Christmas time. So for those of you who are fans of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, we talked about preserving the actual puppets from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So we 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 go everything from mudlarking to drones to buildings to um, Rudolph puppets. Yeah, and and like the the heat miser and Yukon Cornelius. Oh, I got I, I I would I would I would be down for that so all right i'm I'm all all in for that (laughs) yeah i think you you, you're speaking to the right audience here these these are our people right your drones and uh you know preserving rudolph the red-nosed reindeer puppets i mean that that that's pretty interesting i don't think you can do a better tease there so we'll (laughs) we'll make sure that we include all all these links on the the show notes and then also links to your social media and things like that so people that can connect with you one thing i i think i'd be remiss if we didn't cover quickly uh you had a big win in the 2022 session when it comes to the historic revitalization tax credit program. You talked a little bit about that, but that is absolutely vital to preserving our rich history. Talk about what happened in the the 2022 session and why that program is going to be much better uh, moving forward. Yeah, our lobbying team um, in in, in-house, Ellie Cowan, our director of government relations, worked really hard. She's our registered lobbyist there in Annapolis and spends most of the session there in Annapolis doing all that work. Um, And 
worked really hard um, and had a lot of support from the General Assembly, Corey McRae and Stephanie Smith and uh, Eric Lutke, um, uh, uh, Katie Fry Hester, to name just a few, um, really worked hard. And as well, as the, I have to give a great plug to the administration who got us into the one of the supplementals and took the historic tax credit program. Um, so the large commercial is the one that kind of incentivizes these, these big projects that you're familiar with tide point and um, you know, the, the, these, these larger scale projects um, you know, the, the ones down in, in fells and, and uh, the mills of the Jones falls Valley places like that um, these catalytic projects. And for so long, the program had languished after the financial crisis back in 08 and um, had been cut, 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 cut. And eventually it was just $9 million a year. So give you some context, Virginia does, we always, we always throw this out there. Virginia does $100 million a year of these credits. Um, and, um, you know, we are doing nine. West Virginia is doing $30 million a year of them. And if you look at a state that's even closer in budget and size, so Massachusetts, which is oftentimes what we compare ourselves to, um, you know, they're they're doing fifty million a year of them. So we're like not even in the same, um, you know, sort of um, orbit of of our peers. And so we had been sort of banging the drum for years to try and fix this, and this was the year to get it done. And so we've increased it to twenty two million, and then by mid decade, it'll get up into the thirty millions. Um, which is, you know, and we've also been able to increase the per project cap, which with inflation is really important. So instead of it being a $3 million per project cap, it goes up to 5 million potential credits. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's the number one tool we have for community um, redevelopment and investment of, in historic structures. And it has transformed communities all across the state. Um, you know, over in, in East Baltimore, the Hohen Lithograph Company, which is now a, an ABC training center and um, component of the whole campus over there um, to, you know, Western Maryland, the, um, you know, out in Cumberland, um, we've, we've seen mega projects happen. And then, of course, over on the shore, um, you know, in Cambridge um, with the Phillips Packing Company project, which is another amazing um, rehab. So it impacts disparate and diverse communities all across the state. And um, after years of um, howling in the wilderness, we seem to have, have, have struck on something and got a lot of great support for it. Um, and uh, and that, that's a big win. Um, not for us, again, back to that whole thing of service. We won't see any of that 22 million, but um, the communities that we support and that we care so much about will. And that's a, that's an exciting win for us. Um, and, you know, kind of underscores the, the long-term value of relationship building and advocacy. It doesn't always happen overnight, as you guys probably know very well. No doubt about it. A huge win there for, for not only Preservation Maryland, but for the state. And, and Nick, we've covered a lot of ground here today. I, I want to let you close with anything that we, we may have missed, but I do have one question for you. I'll put you on the spot a little bit. I know you previously served as a park ranger at Gettysburg National Military Park and Chesapeake and Ohio Canal National Historical Park. Give us one of your best experiences doing that. I'm jealous that, that you were able to do that, especially up in Gettysburg, history nerd. Um, that, that had to be a really uh, amazing experience. Do you have any takeaways quickly that you can share with, with our listeners and maybe another way to get some of these folks to, to listen to your podcast, which 230 episodes strong. Congratulations on that. I know it's a lot of work. 
Yeah, uh, well, I mean, there's there's a lot of stories about Gettysburg. Um, I uh, and there's some great Gettysburg episodes um, of Preserve Cast where we've talked to some folks up at Gettysburg about different things that are happening up there. Um, so if you want to dive into that, we have some great Civil War history um, uh, episodes of Preserve Cast. Um, you know what I would say? When it, well, so two things about Gettysburg that well, two of of many, maybe three. All right, I'll leave you with three. One is a pandemic Gettysburg story, so it doesn't go back to being a park ranger, but um, you know, during the pandemic, it was like, what the heck are we going to do? We got a young five-year-old. Um, uh, well, I guess she was three when it started. She's five now. And we had to get out of mom's hair. And so we decided that we would go on Civil War adventures. And being able to share a historic place with your child and kind of use it as a, a stress relief valve was incredible. And so we went on, I think we counted and we went like 60 times to Gettysburg. It's only about 25 minutes from my house. And um, sort of fell back in love with it. Never really fell out of love with it, but it took on a new value and a new meaning to kind of see it through your child's eyes. So that was one thing that the pandemic brought that was a silver lining and sort of a, a way for me to re-engage with Gettysburg. Um, second Gettysburg story that uh, I'm proud of is that on the advocacy side, when I worked for the American Battlefield Trust, this is after I was a park ranger, um, I led the national coalition that prevented the creation of a casino uh, about a half mile from the Gettysburg battlefield. So every time I drive by where it would have been, I'm very proud of not seeing anything there. Uh, it's a <laughs> it's a unique unique feeling to be proud of not sure. seeing something. But uh, <laughs> that was a crazy uh, advocacy fight that I could tell you all about. And and you know what's the best thing about Gettysburg, um, or a great story from being there is you know just sitting there at night when it's quiet and sort of taking it all in. Um, and being with an evocative historic place. Um, and, you know, maybe that's where some of my love of the past came from, is being able to kind of sit there and commune with a historic place. Sort of a very um, metaphysical answer to all of this. But, yeah, Gettysburg has always been a special place for me um, and is a great place to visit. And, of course, we have here in Maryland uh, Antietam Battlefield, which is another uh, wonderfully evocative place. And we should do a, uh, a Mako uh staff retreat uh and take you out there that would be fun that would be awesome i will pitch that for sure i, I think it's a great idea but yeah but I'm no fascinated. joke i'll take you guys out there yeah that'd be awesome i'm fascinated with with your historical connections and jealous of your experience in in, in gettysburg and um I, I really think that you all are doing great work and we're really happy that we could have you on especially national preservation month hopefully we can help beat that drum a little bit. But Michael, any closing thoughts from you before we let Nick run to go and do some more celebrating of, of National Preservation Month? <laughs> I think I, I think this is this is great value added for the kind of folks who listen to, to our pod to hear a little bit about this kind of stuff. Uh, I think we've got some some sympathy in mission and the kind of stuff that we do in the space that we occupy. So really grateful for your time to, to commit to chatting with us, talking to our listeners, and giving us an awful lot of leads to follow up on. I'm, I'm psyched now. This is awesome. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. And we'll go ahead and leave it there. If you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. We will link, we'll provide all the links for Preservation Maryland so you can keep up with them as well. But for Nicholas Redding and Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.